hope is so important. There is research that shows that those are more hopeful and more likely to want to act. People talk about active hope being something that we do rather than have. You're listening to Hope Act Thrive by Be The Future, an inspirational podcast for guardians of the next generation who want to nurture heroic leaders for environmental change. Just like you, we want to create a better, greener, fairer future for the kids in our life. Hi, I'm Sally Giblin, an environmentalist, writer, and parent, and co-host of this podcast, alongside the brilliant Helen Hill. Hi, I'm Helen, and I'm an educator, author, and designer. Hello and welcome to the Hope Act Thrive podcast. Today's episode is with Dr. Joanne Crossley, a HCPC registered clinical psychologist and our team clinical psychologist here at Be The Future. Until recently, she worked in the NHS as a clinical psychologist specialising in working with children and young people with physical health conditions. She's currently setting up her own practice, Taka Psychology, where she's passionate about improving the psychological well-being of children and families. Over the last year, as Joanne has become more aware of the scale of the climate emergency, she's become interested in how she can use her clinical psychology skills to contribute to positive action. In this conversation, we'll talk about navigating eco-anxiety with our kids, framing climate conversations with our kids, and cultivating hope and resilience. So let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Joanne. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Very excited about having this conversation and and all the things that you're going to be putting in place with us. So first question, really. um, So Joanne, you're a mum of two young children and five years ago, which I can't believe it was that long ago now, you and your family chose to move to a rural part of Devon in England from the north of England. Can you talk us through your connection with nature and the place it has in your family's life? Yeah, so originally from Bolton, so we known each other gosh just thinking how long we've known each other now but so it's about 11 we yeah decided to move to Devon for kind of a yeah really different lifestyle and I feel really privileged to live where we live we live in such a beautiful part of the world really lucky we have lots of forests and woodland we're not far from kind of Dartmoor and Exmoor we've got the North Devon coastline we're part of like North Devon UNESCO biosphere we're not overpopulated at all we live in a really small town but that has a kind of huge community spirit and it's not to say that there weren't kind of green parts or open spaces where we used to live for you before offend anyone from Bolton but it just felt so disconnected I think we kind of lived in an area that become of a huge commuter belt into Manchester I spent kind of most of my time kind of sitting in the car on motorways sitting in the traffic or if we went to kind of a green space we'd kind of go there at a weekend it was just something you drove to it was always very busy kind of felt very managed you know be a big car park a cafe and then you kind of come back home again and um, here we just noticed that kind of you really notice the seasons so when you used to drive to work you know it's really quiet road you see kind of the change in the seasons we have really beautiful landscape kind of in the valleys um, I just wouldn't hit a traffic light on my way to work in a 30 minute drive and I think that's just made us kind of really yeah feel reconnected uh, with nature the kids just love going for walks they love being outside spotting different animals they regularly see like deer and slow worms they love going through the forest and looking for footprints both of them love doing kind of the RSPB you know the big garden bird watch and we have an allotment as well, which I think for us has been really important for a family. So we're really lucky during the first um, lockdown in COVID, we were kind of given an allotment. And I think that's been just a brilliant part of our family and life. We've 
spend loads of time at the weekend. It's kind of a free, free day out. You know, we learn how foods grow, learn new skills. My daughter, we gave my daughter her own um, little part of it. So she wanted to create a wildflower patch, which is really important for talking about kind of bees and pollinators. The little one just loves digging about and um, pulling out potatoes. And I think it's been really good for us to kind of talk about uh, the impact of weather and how that's impacted on what we've planted. And then that's really opened up kind of conversations about climate the impact of extreme weather and crops and something that's always been kind of important but just really been strengthened since we've lived down here what you're saying joanne it resonates so much because i know i've got a son who's a similar age to one of your children and so we've just recently moved from london back to sydney and i think part of that decision was because sydney has you know so much incredible nature and the beaches and and huge green spaces and parklands things like you're talking about in devon as well it's one of those sort of areas even though it is a large city and i guess even though as a family we really focused in london on spending a lot of time in whatever green spaces we could and it is you know a city with a lot of incredible parklands i think london's even the greenest city in europe but I know that my son, on coming back to a place like Sydney where there's such a big focus in the lifestyle on nature and outdoors, he just can't stop talking about it and, and is saying how much he loves always being outdoors and doing things and is excited because we're going to start a vegetable garden, much like you guys have an allotment. So I think, you know, having that opportunity to, to be amongst nature, it really does help to open all of your eyes and especially the kids' eyes as well. And so I guess... You know, given that you've been spending so much time in such a place like this with your family, how has this contributed to your desire to take action to protect nature? I think spending that time out has been so important because I think, you know, I've noticed how much that's had a huge impact on my kind of own positive well-being, you know, so, you know, I feel so much better. It's kind of reduced stress. So I think as a psychologist, more generally, you know, there's increased evidence for the role of nature and improving um, people's physical and psychological web well-being you know there's lots more kind of evidence-based kind of nature-based interventions so I think while it's always been something that kind of you know not that I wasn't aware of it before you know we've always tried to do what we can as a family you know recycling but there's kind of that bit of an ambivalence um, but I think it's having children and then thinking about their future and then us kind of you know seeing them so interested in nature start becoming more interested you know, become more aware you kind of it's harder than not to do something about it and, you know, and then you start reading more in the link between social inequality and you know I'm really kind of early on in my journey and still have lots to learn and things that I want to do but I think my next steps are very much why directions I can do or kind of community projects I can get involved in. Yeah, I like that. And something you've touched on there, actually, which is something we discussed in an earlier podcast, is about the fact that sometimes your children help you get motivated with taking climate action. And it's really nice to see that people are doing it for the children and that the children are inspiring the parents as well. And I think it's something we've all got in common as well with this wanting to be in the greener spaces. Like like you say, I, I grew up, what, a couple of miles from you. And I've also moved to a greener area on the top of the moors with all this wildness and outdoors and yeah so it's a really interesting conversation actually but one thing I wanted to ask you about was you so you've worked as a, as a clinical psychologist with children and young people for many years and many of those children are navigating very difficult traumatic circumstances 
And what we wanted to ask you about was how can your clinical psychology expertise or, or anybody's be applied to the climate action space? Yeah, so I've specialised in working with children, young people with acute and long term chronic health conditions, but I'm newer to the climate space. And I know you guys have talked in the past about using your own agency and your own interests and skills. And I think for me, there is a parallel that can be drawn to the climate crisis, because a lot of my work was helping children manage and families manage big feelings associated with living with the chronic threat of a health condition, which is obviously what we're doing with living with the climate emergency. So, you know, I've done a lot of work around kind of normalising feelings, you know, acknowledging, validating feelings, you know, helping people to adjust and develop coping strategies. And I think particularly working in physical health, where we just can't necessarily get problem fixed, but we kind of help people to develop, you know, live a kind of rich, meaningful life, have a good quality of life in spite of their medical condition. You know, I think there are real parallels working in the climate space and also things like helping children and young people manage kind of health behaviours. So things like taking medication, sticking to particular diets. And I think there's a lot obviously in climate action around behaviour change and kind of using our expertise and knowledge of, you know, understanding how people make changes. As a profession, our professional body are really encouraging clinical psychologists to get involved and take action and seeing it as really kind of part of our personal professional ethical responsibility. And so I'd be really keen to kind of see and kind of connect with other clinical psychologists and how they're using their skills. Um, I think as health professionals, we do have some power in society. We can start to use our voices to try and influence the call for you know, political and, and social action. I think there's a role in understanding how climate changes are affecting the physical mental health of the client groups we work in. So I think there's, there's lots that I think clinical psychologists can offer. And so that's really interesting to understand how the wider profession is increasingly becoming more involved in the climate space. Where do you think the greatest needs are? And I guess aligned to that, where are those areas where psychology can be most leveraged to make a positive impact on the climate crisis? Oh, that's a big question. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I qualified five years ago and this just was not kind of part of our training at all. But and I think there's definitely been a shift in our professional bodies over the last year. I think in terms of kind of the wider field of psychology, I mean, psychology is about kind of understanding kind of the mind and human behaviour and how people think and feel and behave. Um, and I think there's definitely a growing kind of discipline of climate psychology that I'm keen to kind of get my teeth into. But I think one of the contributions is going to be around public understanding of climate change and why we kind of struggle to engage with this. And I think, you know, just thinking of the don't look up, I mean, I think most people have, have seen that now. You can, you know, there's just so much psychology in there you can draw out. But some research was coming across recently around, you know, why people generally don't act in the face of huge humanitarian challenges so not just climate but you know fighting and genocide as well and there's this really interesting um, website the arithmetic of compassion and they outline some kind of cognitive biases that we have that stop us acting and we all have these biases the kind of our mental shortcuts help us process the information around us really quickly we have to kind of become aware of our biases um, and one of them is this idea of psychic numbing so how we become immune to large numbers of victims. And so if you think of the refugee crisis, remember the picture of the toddler on the beach, how that caused kind of huge global outrage. But when we hear about hundreds of thousands of people, that just doesn't move us to act. And I think there's some really interesting things around there about how we need to harness the power of stories. I think it's that understanding that 
we can then use to try and help make a, an impact on this crisis. And then obviously there's things about how psychology can contribute to behaviour change kind of at different levels, so not just kind of the individual level, but organisational and societal level. Definitely a bigger role to play in climate education engagement and about how we can help create kind of sustainable lifestyles. And then I think there's also a real role for community psychology. And I think during COVID, we saw how, um, you know, different communities responded to the COVID pandemic. And I think there is definitely a role for community psychology and empowering communities um, in the same way in terms of, you know, use that knowledge in, you know, relate it to how communities adapt to the climate crisis. Wow, I, I never even thought of it on that scale, to be honest. I've always thought of sort of eco-anxiety and stuff on that single person level or you know within a family but yeah you're absolutely spot on that there are whole communities and we see it with all sorts with the pandemic with the climate that this this anxiety is rising and the point you've raised there that really baffles me is that you qualified five years ago and this was not even a topic of conversation in that community and it shows how quickly this has progressed and how eco-anxiety has become such a sort of daily used term so it would be really good to understand how do you define eco-anxiety and what's the need you see in the community in terms of our children? Yes, yeah, so I think the way I think as a psychologist, I do have a bit of kind of caution about using the term eco-anxiety because I think it is really normal to feel distressed at the climate emergency. So it's, you know, totally natural to feel kind of all these different emotions. So not just anxiety, but sadness, anger, guilt, shame powerlessness and what response to what is you know a really real and, and serious threat so I think really cautious around that so that we don't pathologize you know something that is kind of a real normal reaction it isn't something that's kind of wrong with any you know with anybody it's not on kind of mental health problem it's not something we kind of overcome and I think while shorthand labels so eco-anxiety can be really you know handy and it kind of summarizes kind of you know everybody kind of quickly knows what people mean by it I think one of the difficulties, I think, like you mentioned about, it focuses on the individual. Um, so then we forget, you know, that actually takes away the attention from what we need is a real, you know, it's, this is shared distress and what we need for that is a real collective response. And so the answer to eco-anxiety isn't kind of individual treatments or how people respond to that, but it is collective action to address climate change. But I think also we do have to acknowledge that increasingly kids are reporting and feeling distressed as a result of, the climate crisis so there was a a big study that came out just at the end of um last year so yeah only a few months ago which surveyed ten thousand children across the world and it you know found really high levels of distress but that was associated with kind of government inaction and you know i think in my work i was just struck with how many of the kids i work with talking about it in a way that obviously we were talking about when we were at school and i mean even at, at kind of work with colleagues it kind of wasn't really something we were talking about and um, you know the kids were involved in school strikes so many of them were kind of vegetarian or vegan and I think you know I'm in an area where you know we're lucky that we haven't been directly affected by floods or you know actual direct impacts of climate change but I think we've got to remember that there are you know some children areas with high air pollution less green space you know, and that that leads to greater distress and those children are also at greater risk of the effects of climate change as well so so joanne how can we help our kids to navigate this eco-anxiety then can you talk us through the three-step act principles you've developed that parents can use to support their child with their feelings yeah so number one is that it's important that parents look after themselves so 
parents, you know, we really need to learn how to manage these powerful feelings too, so that we don't get get overwhelmed and caught up in them. So it's very much like that analogy of, um, you know, when you're on an aeroplane, you know, they tell you to put your oxygen mask on first. So we need to be able to manage our own feelings so that we can support and help our kids manage theirs. And, you know, I think there's ways you can use these steps on ourselves as well. These steps are principles that I've pulled together from, you know, a lot of the evidence. So ACT stands for kind of acknowledge and validate feelings, coping strategies and take action. So acknowledge and validate our feelings is really important. Our kids need to feel seen and heard. So I think ways we can help acknowledge feelings is help our kids name and label their emotions. So um, Dr. Dan Siegel gave this idea of name it to tame it. And so that's, you know, saying, it, saying things like, you know, it sounds like you're feeling really angry about that, or I can hear you're feeling really worried and then normalizing that. So, you know, it's, it's okay to share that you feel this way too. So you might say, okay, you know, that's okay. I feel angry too, or it makes sense you're feeling worried. Lots of people are feeling this way. Um, and I think it's important, you know, as parents, you know, quite often we want to protect our kids. We you know, want to fix their feelings. We want to make them feel better, but actually our role isn't to kind of fix things. It's to, you know, accept their feelings and sit with them. And I think by helping them manage kind of these uncomfortable um, feelings, it helps them learn that they can can tolerate big feelings too. So C stands for coping strategies or kind of emotional regulation strategies. So that's the way we manage our emotions. And so the goal of this isn't to get rid of the feeling, but kind of to help children soothe and feel calm and so for kids that might involve um lots of different things and different things work for different kids so for some kids that might involve movement and they might like jumping or stomping around like an elephant star jumps but for other children you know they might prefer quieter activities so things like writing drawing talking about it other kids might prefer breathing exercises and there's a, a lovely one called the hot chocolate breath where you imagine that you're picking up a mug of hot chocolate and you hold your hands up and you get them to smell the hot chocolate you know breathe out slowly as though they're cooling it and it just helps them to regulate their breathing and then you know for older kids it might be being with friends you're taking a break from social media and i think it's very much coping strategies is seeing it as creating a toolbox of things and sometimes actually people do have a box of different sensory things that that soothe them um, it might be about getting get out in nature so that felt like a kind of important second step and then the last one was t for take action so that's thinking together about what actions you can take as a family and that might be you know that's guided by the values and things that matter to you as a family and that's really important to give you a sense of and kids a sense of kind of that self-efficacy and agency it's really empowering so that real sense that together we can make a difference and there's you know these might be small actions or you might as a family to do things more kind of at community level or it might involve direct action um and i think it's about you know getting kids ideas and what their interests are and i think something about being able to focus on what you can control is really important to help kind of manage some of these really difficult feelings and action can involve connecting with others as well which I also think is really important to know that we're not alone and have this sense of kind of we're in this together in common humanity. Joanne I find these principles you've developed so helpful and I know that I'm going to be using them with my son as this kind of conversation comes up so thank you so much for going through all of that and I guess the next thing then is the idea of speaking to your child about something as devastating as the climate crisis can feel so daunting 
And I think a big thing that comes up, I know for myself personally, and that I hear often in this space is how do we possibly talk about this without terrifying our kids? And, you know, where can we try and even know where and how to start? So you've developed seven principles for framing climate conversations with your children, which has this A to G approach. Can you talk us through this as well, please? Yeah, because it can feel really difficult. And I think it's important to remember that there's no right way. Each child is different and you know your child best. And these kind of principles are things that I've kind of pulled together from, you know, thinking from lots of different sources, but kind of broke it down. So it's a bit easier to remember into the kind of seven principles. And I think particularly with conversations, sometimes, um, you know, it might be that it's a planned conversation, but quite often, you know, find that kids kind of catch us off guard often while we're driving or doing another activity. Because I think we often find that children ask questions more when we're alongside them. So I think just having kind of seven principles in mind can be really helpful that you can just use if you're feeling a bit unsure. But it also might be that you want to start using these just to open up conversations as you do things in everyday life. So the principles are not necessarily in this order, but they're a way to remember it. So A is for acknowledging and validating feelings. So again, just, you know, noticing and naming any feelings that might come up. B is be truthful. So be honest but keep it simple, limit overwhelming information. But also it's okay not to know and to say that you don't know or you know talk about finding out together. C is for curiosity. And so this is about being curious and asking open-ended questions. You know, what do they already know? What do they want to know more about? You know, it might be asking, you know, how have you heard about that? You know, how do you feel about this? And it's using those active listening skills. So that's asking open questions, not you know, being non-judgmental, kind of paraphrasing and summarising um, to check you've understood. And it might be through being curious, you might be able to correct any misunderstandings that they have or you know any misunderstandings that might be causing worry. D is for developmentally appropriate. So what works for a five-year-old isn't going to work for a, a 10-year-old. So for younger children, you need to be using simple, concrete language. You might use kind of books or stories to help explain concepts. You know, as children get older, they're more able to understand abstract language. E is for encouraging action. So, you know, as you're having the conversation, you then might talk about what you can do as a family, you know, how they might want to get involved, what their interests are again. F is for foster that a sense of safety. So it's about providing reassurance that they're safe without minimising their feelings. So instead of saying, oh, don't worry, it'll, it'll be fine, you know, it's saying, I know you're feeling worried, but you're safe and I'm here to keep you safe. You, know, you can talk to me anytime. And it's really about getting that message across that we're there for them and adults are working together on this. And then the last one, G, was about gathering support and resources. And there's some great resources and books and things out there on websites that are starting to talk about how to have these conversations. And I think the real thread kind of around all this is being honest and open and kids will then use able to trust you when they want to kind of make sense of the world and I think these frameworks can be used to have kind of any difficult conversations really. Yeah I love that it's it covers all the bases of giving them the power to feel like they're actually being heard to the safety to you know, feeling part of the family and, and taking action together. And it's, it's a lovely framework. I'm excited to get it out there. I guess just linked to that then, 
How can we help our children to cultivate hope and build resilience? Wow, yeah, that's a, a big question. I think you could probably come back and fill kind of a whole episode on that. I think, you know, hope is so important. There is research that shows that those are more hopeful and more likely to, to want to act. And if we talk about active hope being something that we do rather than have, and I think a way we can kind of cultivate that hope is by, you know, sharing positive news stories, giving examples of times when other big things have changed with action. So if we think about kind of women's vote and marriage equality. I think hope's also about, you know, talking about this as an opportunity and there are positive aspects for for some of the changes. In terms of resilience, I think that's an interesting one because I think it always makes me think of toxic workplaces, which kind of send people on resilience courses or stick a resilience poster on the staff room rather than kind of addressing the real causes of, of stress. So kind of sometimes I feel a bit cautious again using the term resilience because I'm not sure it's something that's kind of an innate characteristic or skill we have in us but it's kind of affected by the environment around us here's our family our parents kind of our community and I think a bit like eco-anxiety I think it's important that when we don't use resilience to talk, talk about the individuals but what we want to do is um you know create communities that help children thrive address those inequalities and social justice and I think this is an area that you know I could definitely do some more learning on in relation to climate change but I think one of the key factors that promote resilience is around kind of close supportive relationships and that's within kind of within our family and and within communities. Yeah I'm glad I'm not the only one that feels that way about that word I've always said that the word resilience is almost the the bat that someone hits someone else around the head with like the bully hits the other person with it is almost it has almost become synonymous with toxic workplaces you're right but yeah as a community we can certainly build resilience we can build power we can build a voice and I like the idea of reframing the word actually I think that's almost something we could be doing but yeah I think it's so important as part of that as well that we hold compassion and kindness for ourselves I mean we're all our own biggest critic and you know the stuff that we say to ourselves we wouldn't say to a friend we wouldn't say to a family member so how do you think that we can hold more compassion and kindness to ourselves which obviously will also help our children yeah definitely I just think compassion is so important and I think like you said it is so easy to that can't fall into those kind of yeah self-criticism you know into the shoulds and the the musts and you know like you said I think we talk to ourselves in just ways that we wouldn't you know we, we would never talk to a friend the way we talk to ourselves so I think it's you know ensuring that we treat ourselves with that same kindness and understanding and I think there's quite often thinking about you know well what would we say to someone else or you know think about what someone else would say to us who can you know helps us to kind of hold that compassion for ourselves but I think there's something about remembering that we're all human you know, I think that we're all in this together we're all trying our best we all make mistakes you know we're all kind of balancing different things we've got different pulls you know there's going to be times where we're managing different values you know whether it's going to be balancing business a relative with flying or feel like we've got other di ethical dilemmas about you know wanting new things and not sure whether we should I've just reflected on uh, making me think of um, sending you a Christmas card Helen and having a huge overthink about am I allowed to send Christmas <laughs> cards and you know just feeling um, yeah yeah 
That did make me laugh when I opened that comment. I don't know if I should be sending this. <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. And it and I think, you know, we we've all kind of learned out we we can't do it all and we're not all perfect. And that's that's what makes us human. And I think that's that's what compassion is. Um and I think there's times when, you know, I think we really need to be kind to ourselves because actually, you know, we need to, there'll be times when we need to dip in and out of this because it might feel too much. And, you know, we need to prevent ourselves from from burning out. Um, and, you know, because we want to raise compassionate children, they learn from us, from us. So if they see us being compassionate to ourselves, then again, you know, they're going to model that and, and then be able to hold those kind of values themselves. Yeah, and I think there's a really important point in that of remembering what you already do and how far you've come as well. And I said that to someone last week, you know, they'd almost thought they were resetting because it was a new year. And remember the stuff you've done that comes before. And OK, you might not do anything new this week or anything groundbreaking, but you've already been doing things. You've already built habits into your sort of daily, daily life, really. And I think it's really important to keep acknowledging that. Absolutely. I agree with you both on the compassion. And I think, Joanne, this conversation has been so thought provoking. And I know personally, I found it really helpful to delve into the psychology around climate action, this whole space. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell the guardians of the next generation? So whether that's parents, whether that's extended family, carers, teachers, anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, I'd like to share something that was at a webinar attended by the Division of Clinical Psychology a few months ago, which is about kind of clinical psychology and the climate and well-being. And it was from a young person, Ella, who shared the concept of the children's fire. Um, it's not something I'd come across it before, but it was incredibly powerful. I don't know if you have heard of it. No, no, definitely not. Um, so she'd taken it from um, the writer, Matt McCartney, and it's from an ancient Indigenous community. And it was a promise made by a circle of chiefs. They wouldn't make any decision in their circle that would harm the children now or ever. And that's the children of all species, not just humans. So they would light a fire in the centre of their circle as a reminder that any future decision would consider the well-being of future generations. And I just thought that as a concept and that idea was just so powerful and she encouraged us to light a candle as a reminder of the promise and I just think as guardians of the next generation and you know if we could use that concept remind us not to make kind of any decisions that would harm children now or ever it feels like that would really encourage us to think long long term it broadens our thinking to include future generations and just feels more hopeful and just help us kind of think about how we can create a real arena and fairer future. Thanks so much for joining us this week. We really hope this episode inspired you. If it did, please review, subscribe and share this episode with a curious friend. It makes it possible for us to keep having these conversations for you. Oh, and check out the show notes for more details on this episode and our guest. And come say hi to us on Instagram over at bethefuture.earth, where we share real tips for real parents and help you to turn eco-anxiety into playful action. Let's hope, act and thrive.